0: Block Talk Radio
1: Glam or Fearless, special podcast for Dive's Late Night. Because you're trying to figure out what's the most popular podcast of the year. Well, the wait is over. Welcome to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Medic. Thank you for listening. Tonight, I'm hosting a special podcast celebrating our fan favorite Diva Talk Radio podcast of 2016. Um, which I announced actually last week. I gave a sneak peek on December's podcast. But before I tell you what the favorite podcast of the year was, um, why don't you take a minute and share your favorite with us on Diva Bedick's Facebook page or email me at MrDivaBedek at com. I'd love to hear from you. All right, so before I reveal it, one more time on the drums, Lorraine. Thank you. Wow. All right. All uh, right. The most popular podcast for 2016 was my annual trip to the gynecologist back in July. I was so delighted to hear that you love this podcast that I decided I would host a special show tonight inviting many of the guests back as well as a few new friends in light of Donald Trump's presidency and what his effects might have on women's health. According to women health advocates, President-elect Donald Trump poses several dangers to women's health, including the promised repeal of the Affordable Care Act, the appointment of one or more Supreme Court justices, and the threat of defunding Planned Parenthood, making it harder for women to seek care. Not to mention that Donald Trump's victory does send a disturbing message about sexual assault to many of us. Well, what do you think? Tonight, you can call in at 347-215-8551 and share your comments with me or any of my guests. Our phone lines are open. Joining me tonight will be the wonderful, she's so friendly, I'm glad to have her back, Dr. Andrea Chisholm, poet Lorraine Brooks, Peak 10 Skin Care founder, Connie Elder, the president of Women in Government Relations, Catherine Schubert, certified diabetes educator, Marianne Hordowitz, and We Are Diabetes founder, Asha Brown. Throughout the podcast, we'll be playing more great music by Leona Lewis off her Christmas album, Christmas with Love, courtesy of Sony Music. Now take a minute to donate to DivaBetic at divabetic.org. Your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated. Hey, did you know December's diva inspiration, Leona Lewis, achieved a national recognition when she won the third series of the X Factor in the United Kingdom back in 2016? She won a million-dollar recording contract with Simon Cowell. I wonder how that was. (laughs) Seems like it turned out pretty well to me. Uh, Why don't we listen to another fabulous song off her Christmas album? Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and I'm going back to the gynecologist to talk about, oh, all things to deal with women's health, including PMDD. That's what we talked about back in July. I don't know if a lot of people know what it stands for, but here to help me is my gynecologist. Hello, Dr. Andrea Chisholm. Welcome back to the show.
2: Hi, Mac. So glad to be back.
1: Were you surprised to find out that our show in July was the most popular with all our listeners?
2: That just put such a big smile on my face. I can't believe it. That makes me really happy, really honored. Well, you're
1: the one who recommended this topic. You wanted to talk about PMDD. Uh, Why don't you tell everyone what it stands for and what it is, because I think it's, it's great to get the word out about it.
2: Yeah, um PMDD is um stands for premenstrual Dysphoria disorder and um it's a diagnosis that sometimes people refer to as um severe PMS. Um and it does share some similarities with PMS, but it is uh, definitely its own entity. so about eighty percent of us will experience some unpleasant symptoms in the premenstrual period, which is the otherwise known as the luteal phase, which is the second half of your cycle. But two to eight percent of women will suffer from a really debilitating um, condition, which is known as uh, premenstrual dysphoria disorder, and it's essentially essentially. The best way to think about it is a cyclical hormone-based mood disorder, which may also have some of the other unpleasant physical symptoms of PMS, but it's predominantly um, a, a really profound um, uh, Condition where you have uh, women have feelings of sadness and despair, um, even can be uh, associated with suicidal ideation, tension, panic attacks, anger, trouble focusing, loss of energy. Um, and it comes on only during that luteal phase, so after ovulation, so may last some segment of the two weeks before your period comes. Will start to go away and abruptly end about halfway through your period, um, and then it goes away, and you're fine, and you com- feel completely yourself and normal and happy. And then, bam! Again, in another two weeks, you're back down into this darkness.
1: Can I ask you a question um, before we move on? Do you, do can women can this happen to women at any time? So for a while, you know, for years, they're having mild. Uh, menstrual cycles and there's no issue with it then suddenly bam this happens and and also in reverse can they be dealing with this and then it slowly start to disappear over time
2: um, so what we what we do see is we, we, we don't we don't see that so much. You know, I th- PMDD is really something that, that that comes on really early on um, with uh, the with the with the with the menstrual with the menstrual cycles. Um, we we can see some of the of the 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 mood criteria piece um, develop maybe perimenopausally or 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 be somewhat um, happening in the uh, uh, teens, um, but but to really have it be severe enough to make the diagnosis of premenstrual dysphoria, dysphoria disorder, it really is something that starts early on and continues with women through through their lifetime. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but that's sort of typical.
1: Okay. Well, you know, tonight we're also talking a little bit about diabetes and the gynecologist. Uh, 29 million Americans are living with diabetes today, according to the American Diabetes Association. Half of those are women, but unfortunately, many women in premenopause And menopause, don't realize they have diabetes. Uh, It seems, according to the Daily News in New York City, the symptoms can be confused for diabetes with the symptoms of menopause, including frequent urination, night sweats, anxiety, mood swings, uh, foggy thinking, dry, itchy skin, and vaginal infections are are common to both. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that, Dr. Andrea?
2: Yeah, I mean that that's you know it's a it's a it's a, a little bit of a slippery slope, you know. We want to we always want to make sure that um you know we tend to women tend to sort of be um uh, end up with in, in menopause, and a lot of people will just say, "Oh, that's menopause," and and ignore other things. And I think the the take-home message from this article really is um, that you know you 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 are more than just your hormones. And it very well may be menopause, but it is important to be keep up with your other routine health screenings and and screening for diabetes and screening for thyroid disease. Those are things that that all should be occurring, especially in the age. Age at which you become typically menopausal or perimenopausal, so late 40s, early '50s. And that's sort of the time where uh, in a way, our, 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 our warranty <laughs> tends to run out a bit, and a lot of these a lot of these, um, uh, some, some of the more uh, uh, chronic diseases or, or disorders or can start to manifest. I mean they may have shown up earlier in life, but certainly thyroid disease and um, onset of type 2 diabetes can start to happen in the, in the '40s and early '50s.
1: Interesting. I mean, I, I would, I could see how those synd- symptoms overlap a lot and that that would be confusing. Of course, no one wants to get a diagnosis of diabetes, so assuming it's menopause, I don't know. That seems like a slippery slope for both people, like it's not mm-hmm. something you want to admit to either. So I could see where there's confusion. All right, well, I want to move on because uh, obviously Donald Trump is um, – one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast tonight, a lot of women emailed me through Divabetic or Voicer Concerns, either on our Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter pages, about what's going to happen to women's health going forward. Um, he's not really into reproductive rights. <laughs> and there's a lot of fear, especially with his new health secretary, Representative Tom Price, that uh, he, they don't really want to get behind contraceptives. So a lot of women are running to their doctors right now to uh, buy contraceptives and there was a recent article about some of the better choices for women with diabetes when it comes to contraceptive. This, specifically, they mentioned IUDs. I'm I'm wondering what your opinion on that is, and if you could give us some more um, information.
2: Yeah. So that this is, the, you know, the, this is obviously a huge, a huge area of concern. Um, you know, I. I I sort of want to want to take the, the the road of of, of being hopeful that um, you know that we're not going to be sort of thrust back into the dark ages here, um, so to speak. Um, I know that the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists are are are, are hopeful as well that um, uh, we're going to be we're going to not see sort of what's predicted that's going to happen. Um, so sort of. Stepping aside from the from the political piece um and, and and answering the question about the the contraceptive choice um the the the, the information that came out in a, about the the best choices the articles and all the information that came across for the best choice of contraception for diabetics came um, out of a out of a uh, article that was looking at um which which uh contraceptives uh are most associated with the risk of um, uh, thromboembolism, in women with uh, diabetes. So, uh, women with diabetes are at a at, a, at an increased uh, risk for um, uh, blood clots and stroke and uh, heart attacks. Uh, you know, given the um, given the uh, cardiovascular changes uh, that happen uh, in diabetes, and so any any hormone any hormonal contraception that contains estrogen um, also adds to that risk, so that would be the birth control pill, the contraceptive patch, and um, the contraceptive ring, Uh, and options that uh, would be less likely to increase that thromboembolic risk would be things like um, the Mirena-containing IUD, um, uh, the progesterone, sorry, the progesterone-containing IUD, which is the Mirena, um, the implant, uh, or potentially the Depo-Provera injection now the rub in that effect so yes so from a from a a standpoint of risk factor for potentiating cardiovascular complications of diabetes for sure um uh the 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 iud um, uh, uh, um or
1: the implant
2: or the implant yeah um the 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 concern with the progestin only um uh, methods um is also is also looking at um the uh the risk of I think we had talked about before that progesterone can and we do see women in the luteal phase of their cycle have um, an increase in in control of their their blood sugars so that's the one thing that we that you just need to be mindful of uh, to just uh, if you are using a progestin only method that it could um, cause some uh, alterations in the in your blood sugars and then the third piece which sort of ties back into the pmdd uh, issue um, uh, is that uh, progestin-containing contraceptives ha- can be associated with uh, increase in um, mood mood changes in women, especially women who are sensitive to progestins, which is one of the one of the uh, potential uh, um, causes of uh, PMDD. Some women have uh, progestin sensitivity. An IUD, though? I didn't- yeah, I can. And actually, that? not not a, not a, a a non-hormonal containing IUD won't. Okay. So the 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 um, the Paragard, which is a which is a non-hormonal containing IUD, doesn't have any hormones in it at all. But if we're talking about a progestin or or progesterone containing IUD, the Mirena, that that can uh, cause some uh, transient um, uh, and also long-standing um, mood changes because of the progestin in it.
1: Can I you, who talks to me about contraceptives if I'm a woman? Do I talk to my gynecologist about it? I mean, all of these things you mentioned, there's a lot, we're giving out a lot of choices, and, the, you know, you're, you're um, mentioning a few things that could be drawbacks. I'm just wondering, like, who do I, if I'm a woman and I'm, actively se- I'm sexually active, wh- who, where are the best sources for me to go, and who, who do I talk to about well, I mean, ideally. Can you show me ideally, this if I come into your office?
2: well yeah i mean ideally it ideally it is a ideally it is a gynecologist, I and mean, I think the most important thing is just to make sure that you know when you're when you're talking some 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 um uh offices will have uh, support of like a contraceptive counselor which can be helpful but i think that the the important piece is to talk to your is to talk to your gynecologist about um really what 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 methods would be best for you because you need to take into account all of your other confounding medical issues you know are you somebody who suffers from um, some depression do you have diabetes do you have polycystic ovarian syndrome what are the risks and benefits how is this going to be helpful for you how is this not going to be helpful for you um, is this going to make one condition better but another condition worse? And sort of you have to really kind of work through that to choose what method is going to be is going to be appropriate for you.
1: Well, it seems to me that um, this is a new conversation for women bringing their hormones and their cycles together with diabetes. Since I've talked to so many women over the years, they didn't really see the relationship. And it seems to me that outside of a woman with type 1 trying to get pregnant, uh, there, there's not a lot of transparency. So do you think there's going to be more going forward with you sharing information with my endo and other people and getting involved in that conversation? Because it just seems so important, like the missing ingredient for a lot of women trying to manage their diabetes is understanding that there might be changes going on monthly due to their, their hormones and their cycles and things like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that is the case for sure. Um, And I'm just, I'm just really, I'm really um, glad that it's starting to come out um, in, uh, you know, in the, uh, coming out in the literature, the evidence is supporting this and studies are being done, really looking at um, the, the, the uh, association between the use of hormonal contraception and, you know, depression in women. Um, Because I think that that's a, that's something that we, that, that, People have been sort of shrugging their shoulders and sort of telling women that no, the the, the birth control pill is not making you depressed. Your contraceptive methods not making you depressed. It's in your head, um, and that that I know for sure had been something that had been going on, and and maybe is still. But that's why we need to push to sort of educate educate women to understand that. I mean, there was a major reason why they've sort of scrapped the. Um, the male contraceptive that they were, that they were working on was because men um, they, they actually uh, discontinued the study because uh, there was such a high rate of depression in men on the contraceptive yet, it's been, you know, women have been, been complaining about that and suffering from that for from a long period of time. But, I mean, unfortunately, you know, if you're sexually active and you're, you know, are you don't want to become pregnant, you need to be on a form of contraception. And I think the thing is just don't assume that it's in your head and, and really, you know, really work with your, with your um, gynecologist or your primary care doctor if you feel different when you're on a, um, a hormonal contraceptive to, to work to, to find a different method.
1: Well, you know, that's interesting because I I had a hot topic for you that I want to get your opinion on. I I know we're all trying not to get political, but in December, uh, Representative Mia McLeod, a Democrat from Columbia, South Carolina, put forth a bill in her state that would require men to wait 24 hours after receiving a prescription for erectile dysfunction drugs to be filled. This is based on the 24-hour wait period for women having abortion. It's kind of like just wanting to show people what's involved in this on a woman's side and get a little mm-hmm. bit more, um, I would think, support about some of, the, some of the things that could change under a Trump administration. Any thoughts on that?
2: Um. I, I all I, all I can say is I just, I'm just, uh, again, I'm just hopeful that we're not going to go, that we're not going to go too far backwards. That we have enough political, political pull now, and enough of a, a voice and an outcry to, um, hopefully, uh, you know. Not lose too much of this. I mean, I I think that the I think that the big the big concern is, um, you know, the 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 things that might happen individually from state to state, just creating an equity across the across the country, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But in terms of access, I mean, in terms of access to con, in terms of access to contraception, I mean, I think that there are a lot of um, a a lot of uh. Alternatives to accessing contraception, like online uh, pill ordering um, apps and uh, startups that are that are out there, that are are going to. Um, uh, you know get, get around some of these um, prohibitions that may be put in place um, you know I think that I, I, I think that what's going to what's going to end up happening what might be lost is you know right now women are getting um, their, their contracept a lot of their contraceptive methods uh, uh, for um, no no cost sharing they, they're, they're, they're paying their insurance and their insurance is covering it and they don't have to pay a copay I mean I think those copays will come back um, and they may come back and be pretty substantial or be added onto deductibles. but I think what's going to end Filling that gap is going to be a lot of uh, you know ingenuity and in startup, um, which is going to be which is going to be you know a, a create some degree of access inequality, which you know is unfortunate. and I think that is really the under, you know a, a major part of the underlying concern for a lot of people.
1: I agree. It's always great to have you here. You're going to stick around because Asher Brown's going to come up a little later on the show and she's going to give us a progress report on how things have changed for her. Uh, if you remember, Dr. Andrea, and listeners, uh, back in July, Andrea was telling us a little bit about the conflicting medication uh, diagnosis she was under and trying to become more of a health advocate and proactive in her own choices, and so it would be great to hear back to, from her because she had a pretty um, complicated diagnosis and was dealing with a lot of things, and I think people will really enjoy hearing about her. But When we come back, we're going to talk to our poet, Lorraine Brooks, about an important issue close to her heart. But first, let's hear another song from our diva inspiration. Leona Lewis achieved international recognition with the album, her first album, in 2008, when she became the first British female solo artist to top the U.S. Billboard 200 chart in more than 20 years. Let's hear another song from her Christmas album, courtesy of Sony Music. Welcome back to the Ivy's Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. According to The Atlantic, Donald Trump's presidential victory sends a message that bragging about groping women, as Trump did in the 2005 Access Hollywood recording that surfaced during his presidential run, is behavior that is either to be rewarded or ignored. Here to discuss this topic with me is our very own poet, uh, uh, Lorraine Brooks, who's also a domestic violence advocate. Hello, Lorraine.
3: Hi. Good evening, Max. How are
1: you? I'm great, and I, you know, I was really excited and thrilled to be doing this podcast tonight, talking about women's health, going back uh, and talking to Dr. Andrea, who I love so much, and you know, you and I both had interesting reflections about uh, the election, and uh, I just felt like this is a great way to kind of become advocates ourselves and, and start moving forward with progress and change and being hopeful like Dr. Andrea said.
3: Well, I, you know, I applaud you again for having, uh, for having this topic on your show. It's very important, I think, to talk about issues. I think when we uh, isolate ourselves or we assume that people feel a certain way and we're not really talking and we're not really expressing ourselves in a respectful way, you know we, we we don't have an opportunity to exchange the information that will help all of us, so I appreciate you and I appreciate all your guests and Dr Andrea, she did a great job. I was very interested in what she had to say and um you know I, the, the domestic violence piece is also as you said i'm am an advocate and i I work well with a lot of survivors and um um it's it's a big issue, and people are very, very concerned about it, especially in light of the fact that It appears as if um, uh, Donald Trump is, um, uh, I I wouldn't say he's advocating, but I I would say it appears as if he's certainly not as concerned as some other people are about uh, the issue of sexual assault.
1: Yeah, and how do you think that (laughs) does impact, you know, uh, men and women who are victims of assault? Like those words and just, you know, how... It just like I said in the opening, how the Atlantic said people are being uh, – it's either being rewarded or ignored. Do you, what kind of message is that sending to people? Because I know there's a lot of people out there, and you know as well, who unfortunately are experiencing abuse. And I want to make sure that um, – we're going to share the number for them in a minute. But I'm just curious what you think the impact his words had on people.
3: Well, you know I think one of the one of the messages that we've always tried to advocate and get uh, to people to understand is silence is really our worst enemy, uh, and we we have to uh, talk about these things we have to find people that we can trust to tell them what's happening in our lives and tell them the truth about what we're going through and what we're experiencing and my fear is that uh, these comments and the, the climate that we seem to be moving into uh, might have the effect of shutting people down and having them talk about their problems less than uh, than they were before. And we've just really begun, I think, to um, get people to understand that that it's important to talk about them. And I hope that People get the message that they shouldn't shut down, no matter what happens, no matter whether um uh the the messages are positive or negative, or whether the administration <clears throat> excuse me is positive or negative. I think we have to still uh encourage each other to talk and to find people that we trust. there are still going to be people who are advocating and who are in, in positions of, of trust where they can help individuals who are suffering and not to suffer in silence. I think that's the most important thing, not to let any any political climate stop you from asking for the help that you need.
1: No, I think that's I, – I agree. I, I've been reading a little bit more about domestic violence and what people should do, and one of the things they need – they said – the priority is to have an exit plan, a, uh, an escape plan, right? Is that how do you What do you tell people who are in a situation? What's the first thing they should do to try to um, get out of it safely? Well, um, first of
3: all, um, it, it may not be the best thing just to, to tell someone to leave. I know that that's a very difficult concept for some people to understand because it kind of goes, it's kind of counterintuitive, you know, if you're being abused or you're being... Uh, certainly physically abused, the first thing that we tell people is, well, you know, you got to leave. But in actuality, um, we know that when women leave abusive relationships, they're actually more likely to be murdered and actually more likely to be injured than if they stay. And I know that sounds like a, a strange thing to say, but I think we have to take each case on an individual basis. There are some women for whom leaving is not the best idea, at least not in the short term. So what we tell them instead and what we give them support is to – exactly what you said – to construct an exit plan so that you have some uh, idea of what you are going to do when you decide to make that final move, whether it's um, – you know, packing a bag and and leaving phone numbers and, and, uh, you know, saving some money if you can do that, having uh, people that you can get in touch with, places where you can stay, have some idea of where you're going to go. And it's not always the best idea to go with people uh, that you're related to Mm -hmm. because chances are your partner would have access to those people as well. That's not always the best idea. But, Yes, to have a safety plan, to have a plan of action, to have a plan of whom you're going to contact, how you're going to get in touch with them Um, at work, to let people at work know that you're in the situation. If you have an order of protection or some other kind of protective order, to share it with your public safety people at work if you have a Department of Public Safety. uh, I know that where I used to work at Downstate Medical Center, um, uh, we would... um, certainly protect uh, individuals while they were on campus, and we would arrange for them to be escorted to their automobiles and escorted to the bus stop and the train station if necessary, if they had an active order of protection. Um, If you have children, to um, make sure that you have um, what you need for your children, birth certificates, uh, social security numbers, medications. If you need medications for them, have a supply on hand for a week or so so that if you have to leave in a hurry, you you have you can just take your go bag and everything is already in there. So, yes, we, we do encourage people to have a safety plan and to share that plan with someone that they trust. A lot of times um, people will devise some kind of a signal. For example, they might flash their lights or turn their lights off in the house or turn the light in front of the house off or something like that so the neighbor will know that they see the light off, or if they see the light on, that there's a you know reason for them to be concerned and and to think about it, because you don't want to put people in more jeopardy by by leaving and then having the person come after them and and cause a bigger problem.
1: Right, I I, I could see that. All right, we should tell we should take a minute and just um, share with people the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE. Uh, otherwise, it would, if you're writing it down, it would be one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three, 799 7233 and uh, they could help you create an action plan like you're talking about, Lorraine, uh, to leave a dangerous situation or relationship. In, in exactly. Way. And I, I, I agree with what you said. I, I mean, I think people have to uh, – the flight has to be smart <laughs> in in how exactly. you how how swiftly you move forward in order to be successful with that
3: exactly that, that that's that a perfect way of putting it uh we don't want you to make a, 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 a too quickly too quick a move or without thinking or as i said without planning ahead because uh you you're going to need certain things to have with you and so a little forethought and Finding people that you can trust, that's a a very important thing as well. People that you can talk to, people that you can let them know if you don't hear from me for a day or two, you know, this is where I'll be or this is what's happening. And um, even when, or if I should say, uh, uh, the next few years turns out to to be um, not so friendly towards some of the issues that we're talking about, those hotlines will still be in effect. People will still be working them. They'll still be going to be volunteers. There are still going to be shelters. There are still going to be people out there who operate safe houses and who are safe people to talk to. So I encourage people, again, not to, be, not to, go, not to shut down, not to suffer in silence, not to uh, assume that people are not going to be willing to help, and for, by all means, um, talk about your issues and talk about what's really going on. That's the only way that you can really get any help is if you talk about it and let somebody know what's happening.
1: No, I, I think it's great. All right. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit with you uh, before we go back to Dr. Andrea. We're having a little problem with our phone lines, everybody. Some of our guests can't get in, uh, get online tonight. We were hoping to talk to Asha Brown and uh, Catherine Schubert as well as uh, Marianne Hordowitz, but right now we're having a problem with our phone lines, so uh Before we go back to Dr. Andrea, I know you you must have some concerns around the Affordable Health Care Act and what uh some of Paul ryan's ideas may be in changing that, or even the idea of the new Secretary of Health and uh wanting to change things around uh, Any thoughts on that, Lorraine?
3: Well, actually, to be honest with you, max, I haven't really looked into it very much. I just um i think I mentioned on last week's show. I just actually became eligible for Medicare, so I'm kind of concerned now my my main concern is um the the cuts that that are being planned or are being spoken about uh being planned for Medicare. I know that uh, I wear an insulin pump and I'm finding out that there are a limited number of places where I can get supplies for my insulin pump under the current medicare plan and i' Uh, A little discouraged about that and a little discouraged that 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 also may change and some of the uh, criteria may increase and also some of the benefits may decrease. So I think there are going to be a lot of changes in a number of ways uh, with a number of plans and and a number of concerns. So I'm going to be listening with both ears and uh, um, encouraging people to do the same thing and also, again, to get as much information as you can. And talk to as many people as you can, and not to make assumptions that something may be the case when it may not be, or vice versa. Um, so I think that I think moving forward, we're going to see a lot of changes, and um, we're just going to have to be, especially the people living with diabetes, are going to really have to stay on top of the things that we're entitled to, and uh, you know maybe make some adjustments in the way that, that that we do things so that we can protect our own health as well.
1: No, thank you. And, and, you know, Lorraine, thank you for being a part of all the podcasts over the past year. It's always a, a pleasure and honor to work with you. I think your poetry has given so much inspiration to so many of our listeners and our fans on Facebook. And uh, I just appreciate you coming on tonight, talking about some of these issues. I know the election wasn't easy for you and, uh, or me, but I, I know it was problematic. And so um, thank you again for being on the show tonight.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you, Max, for having me. Thank you for always advocating for the things that are important to me. I wish you a healthy and happy and prosperous new year. And all of your listeners as well, happy holidays and a healthy and prosperous new year. And let's continue to do this uh, in 2017 because it's very important.
1: Great. Thank you, Lorraine. All right, well, I'm going to go back to the gynecologist. I was reading Woman's Day, and there's nine things you should ask your gynecologist. I think if I, if anyone should ask them, it probably should be. So, Dr. Andrea, you're in the hot seat for a minute, and then we're going to be talking to uh, Catherine Schubert in a little uh, coming up. But I have a couple questions that I'm supposed to ask you um, according to Woman's Day magazine. Are you ready for the first question?
2: I'm ready for the first question.
1: Why does sex hurt? <laughs>
2: Um, That question, if you ask it, should be followed up with um, questions from the gynecologist, such as, um, does sex hurt every time? Does sex only hurt in certain positions? Does sex hurt just with insertion, or does sex hurt with deep penetration? Does the discomfort last long after the um, sexual encounter some of the causes of why sex can hurt can range from um, you know not inadequate lubrication um, before insertion uh, vaginal um, a vaginal uh, infection uh, such as a, uh, or ba- vaginal bacterial imbalance such as a bacterial vaginosis or a yeast infection um, it could uh, be something uh, related to a uh, decrease in estrogen around menopause. It could be a sign of a pelvic infection. It could be a sign of an ovarian cyst. It could be a sign of um, uh, endometriosis uh, to get a sense of for how long it's been going on. Has this been a long standing problem? All the answers to all those questions can help your uh, gynecologist uh, focus in on why sex may hurt. Sex shouldn't hurt. So if sex hurts, You should discuss that with your gynecologist.
1: And especially women with diabetes, because you and I have talked about uh, personal dryness issues for women with diabetes in the past. So that really is something that... None of our listeners should be afraid to ask. I wasn't embarrassed asking you. I know it's a little bit of a, you know, we're, we're having fun here tonight. But this is a, this is a big issue for people, and there's, there are a lot of solutions out there. And I hope, I hope we, we just took away some of the stigma about asking about that question for our listeners. I hope so, too. All right, one more question, then we're going to go to Catherine Schubert. Uh, why does it itch down there, Dr. Andrea?
2: So itching down there can be go go along with some of the reasons why I just said why it could be painful. So, what is it? Itch is this itch new? Is this um, is this uh, itch uh, uh, longstanding? Um, causes of itching in the vag the vaginal or vulvar area can be um, a result of a of a of a contact reaction a con like a con- almost like a contact dermatitis. Um, have you changed your uh, detergent recently? Are you using um, feminine hygiene products that are scented? Um, Are you maybe having a reaction to latex condoms if you're using them? Um, Or do you have a yeast infection? Do you have a bacterial infection? Are you experiencing uh, some of the... um, General urinary symptoms of menopause in terms of vaginal dryness; um, those are all possible reasons um, why you could be, or do you have a, do you have a, 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 um, a inflammatory condition of the, of the vulvar area? Um, uh, again, something like a, like a chronic uh, inflammatory condition, sort of like an, um, an eczema, something that's called um, lichen sclerosis. So there's lots of reasons why you could be having a vulvar or vaginal itch.
1: Wow, so you just really have to take notes, become per, uh, your own healthcare advocate, bring some notes back to your gynecologist and just kind of discover, you know, go through the checklist just like you did to see if any of these things line up right?
2: Yeah, I mean, yes, and and for sure your gynecologist should be asking you those questions when you complain of that, but it certainly can be helpful for you to advocate for your own health when you have a problem to ask yourself some of those questions. How long has it been there? Does anything make it worse? Have you changed anything? Just so that you could offer that information just in case your gynecologist doesn't ask those questions. I mean, hopefully they would. That's part of our job, Um, but it is helpful if you can think about those things and then then bring those uh, in with you when you when you say to your gynecologist, I have a vaginal itch and blah, blah, blah.
1: Great. All right. Well, you'll be back in a little while to answer some more questions. But right now we're going to take a break and listen to our diva inspiration, Leona Lewis, who admits that it was she was incredibly nervous about recording her rendition of the popular classic, tough to sing Ave Maria. Ironically, Lewis' oh. musical roots are based in classical music, She didn't perform contemporary music until she was 16 years old. Let's listen to Leona Lewis. To diabetes late night, that was Leona Lewis, and I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. On December sixteenth, President Obama signed the twenty first century cures bill into a law to advance research and inform sharing on medications in pregnancy and breastfeeding, which could be extremely beneficial for women with chronic illnesses like diabetes. Here to discuss that topic and more is the Chief Advocacy Officer for the Society of Maternal. Fetal medicine and the current president of Women in Government Relations. Please welcome Katherine Schubert to the show. Hello, Catherine.
4: Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me.
1: You have so many titles. <laughs> I have to say, I was <laughs> so nervous fun. about this interview.
4: <laughs> no, no, there's no reason to be nervous. Um, you know, my my day job, as I say, is as um, chief advocacy officer at SMFM, and those are the high risk pregnancy doctors, but. What I do in my spare time, uh, among other things, um, is uh, President of Women in Government Relations, which is sort of a labor of love of mine.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm interested in talking about that because, obviously, um, we're kind of dancing around politics tonight. I'm, I'm part of a nonprofit, so I, I'm not taking either side. But uh, it was a difficult election for many people, and some people are elated, so uh, we're happy for those people as well. But a lot of women uh, have been reaching out to us through our Divabetic community with a little fear and frustration and kind of wondering what it's going to take to get a woman in. Uh, to be president, so let's first just talk about women in government. And uh, I know that women of color only represent four percent of the Congress. Uh, Eighty-nine women are serving in the uh, Congress right now. Twenty-four of them are women of color, and then thirteen are African American, seven are Latina, four are Asian. Do you think there's going to be a shift now from uh, what happened after the election or where do you think what do you think the election means to women, especially those who might go into government?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, I think there are a few few takeaways from this election and, you know, one of them is they're immediately following with, you know, some feelings of shock and surprise. Um, I think on both sides, (laughs) whether it was the outcome you had hoped for or not, I think everyone was a little bit surprised. Um, You know, I think the shining light here for women in government is that if you look at the Senate, um, you know, there are now, despite the fact that there are so few women, there are more women of color than there have ever been before. And so I think we are seeing some small inroads, um, you know, in terms of uh, the federal, you know, legislature. Um, But also, if you look at the state legislature, it's even more promising. So that's sort of the pipeline up to the federal government. Um, You know, women are running for office at the state level more than ever before, And part of this goes even further back into childhood. You know, women, I think, often think of themselves as having to be 100% qualified to do something in order to convince them to do it. Um, Whereas, you know, men might think, oh, I have one of those four attributes and I can totally do that job. So I I think getting um, to even young girls to convince them that you know, this is something that they should be able to do um, and they are you know, more than qualified to run for office uh, is something that we have been following you know, closely for a long time. From my perspective, if you look at what's happening at the state level, and this sort of applies to policy as well, you know, with more women getting involved, we will have a better pool to choose from. I think both, regardless of what party you're in, Um, There are more women running, and so that is very promising, you know, despite the fact that that glass ceiling is very cracked right now. um, It's not completely broken at the presidential level, but, um, you know, we are seeing inroads, and I think that's really positive, and we're kind of hanging on to that and encouraging more women to run for office at all levels.
1: You know, uh, no, thank you for that. And I want to go back to what you just mentioned about women kind of judging themselves harshly because we are Diva Talk Radio, so we love to talk about famous divas. In a recent interview in Rolling Stone, Madonna blamed Trump's victory and Hillary Clinton's loss on women voters touting the theory that women hate women, that women betray each other and that they're much harsher on themselves than they are on men. I'm just kind of curious, since you are in that – world do you think that's true Do women um politicians uh do they come together or do they go against each other
4: so i come from my background um you know from my first professional days was as a staffer on congressional uh capitol hill working for moderate republicans and so and and females for that matter um and so what I saw there and, and what I've sort of seen if you look at any sort of large piece of legislation moving through, um, particularly in a bipartisan way, you can see uh, women coming together on both sides of the aisle to make something happen. Um, I think we actually even saw that um, if you look at some of the debates, um, you know, over the past few years, there, there have been, you know, tons of stories about women in the Senate in particular Um, having weekly lunches and talking about what policies they would like to shape. And and that was not limited, you know, to one party or another. So, you know, while I think when we look at um, women rising through the ranks and, and, you know, perhaps being judged in in a certain way, what I've seen, and this is certainly not, there's no data behind this, but what I've seen is women kind of coming together across the aisle to say, well, we have a unique perspective as women, and where can we find common ground to, you know, do the right thing, come up with a policy that works? Um, with that said, I do think we, we as women judge ourselves very harshly. I know I personally do that. Um, you know, I say things to myself I would never say to anyone else. So um, I think there are lessons to be learned there. Um, but when you really dive a little bit deeper into it, um, at least on in, in the federal level, from what I've seen, there are women working together to really make progress. It's slow, but but it is happening.
1: Interesting. All right, well, you know, a lot of people are saying that this election was determined a lot by social media and that most viewers, uh, voters, not viewers, <laughs> We tend to be in a silo where we're getting our news and our information off of social media. It's very conflicting, too, if you watch some of the cable networks. I'm just curious, like, what resources you turn to to kind of hear the more informed, less opinionated view of what's going on in the world? Because I have watched uh, the same story on competing channels on cable, and it's they're 180 in, in the content and the statements being made about the, the same information. And it becomes really <laughs> difficult, I think, and frustrating to try to surmise what's really going on when you're hearing such different stories on the same yes, topic. it is.
4: It absolutely is. Um, and I think you're right. Social media completely exacerbates that. and. You know, depending on how you would set up your feed, it can be biased one way or another without even necessarily knowing it. Um, You know, when I think about sort of politics and and policy in particular, I think the best advice that I can give is to really do your homework. Um, You know, in order to be the best advocate for yourself or for whatever issue that you're looking at, um, you know, you really need to know – all sides of it. So when I think about an issue that I'm working on um, or working on personally or really care about, I want to know what the arguments against it are and and then really shore up sort of my own responses to that. Um, You know, in terms of credible news sources, I think you could you're right, like all the cable news um, networks, you can see different perspectives. Um, You know, there was a poll that came out following the election about trusted news sources. And I think in the wake of all of you know, this, the fake news issue um, and, and social media in particular, um, most people are turning to their, their network news um, most likely now. So, you know, your ABCs, your NBCs, your CBSs, I think those are pretty, um, you know, they're nonpartisan. You're not going to really get a spin necessarily from those folks. Um, but, again, you know, take a look at one story from one perspective, see if you can find another one, just to see what's out there. I think that's really important to do your homework.
1: I absolutely agree And, you know, I I think it's hard You know, everyone knows who hears my show That I I watch, uh, read People magazine So, you know, to read read multiple news stories Kind of my eyes roll in the back of my head But I have been trying (laughs) to force myself to do that Because I just feel that we're all so siloed In that, you know, when you go to your Facebook feed Everyone's for one side and not the other And sometimes it's good to hear another argument I also personally believe that when you're watching these talk shows, they were so vile. I mean, violent, and people were—they were vile as well. But they, people were not discussing; they were arguing. And it seems mm-hmm. to me that I that see. that kind of um, behavior only echoed further, and and just kind of came to everyone around you that you couldn't even have a normal conversation in, with your coworkers because everyone just seemed to be getting so much more frustrated and rattled and I, I did read that there was some research about when you see the message that you believe in and, and you read it in, in um you read it it gives you more confidence in your ideas and so when someone questions them you don't you don't you you tend to be much more argumentative than discussive with the idea.
4: Yeah, I mean, I totally think that's true. It, it is hard. It takes time. I am an avid people magazine reader, too. Um, so, so, you know, it, it does take time. Um, but I do think that, you know, if you invest that time and really know what it is that, you know, you're you're looking at and thinking about, um, chances are you might actually win those arguments, too. I mean, I think you're right. And, and the other piece of this, too, is um, you know, how emotionally invested I think everyone was in, in this election. And, and I've seen that in other elections as well. Um, but I think it's still raw, at least for me and in, in my environment, you know, in D.C. Um, you know, people are still really pers- feeling very personally hurt by the election, again, on both sides. Um, and so trying to think about how can we come together and, and move forward Um, it seems a little bit tougher and I don't know if that's, you know, because of social media or that sort of feedback loop where you're reinforcing everything that you believe, but, um, you know, it's important to try to remember we're all people and, you know, we can, we can find common ground on most things. I think it's just, you know, those really controversial ones that are tough.
1: No, absolutely. All right. Now let's get back to what I brought up right at the beginning of this segment. Um, President Obama signed about a week ago the 21st Century Cures Bill into a law to advance research and inform sharing on medications and pregnancy and breastfeeding. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and how it may affect women with diabetes since it seems like it would be a, beneficial? I'm curious to get your feedback.
4: Yes, and in fact when this provision was um, originally created, um, it was a bill sort of on its own on the House side, and then the Senate took it up as well. Um, You know, the groups who supported it, which was my organization, SMFM, along with the American Congress of OBGYNs and March of Dimes and the American Academy of Pediatrics and others, um, one of the conditions that we thought of, um, you know, that this could potentially help was diabetes. Um, I think from SMFM's perspective, more high-risk pregnancy doctors are seeing, you know, more women with chronic conditions coming in who are pregnant or want to get pregnant. Um, you know, they're on medication to control a condition, um, but you know, the question is, is it really better for them to stop taking that medication during pregnancy? Um, and you know, the answer from the physicians that we talked to, and and you know, the folks that we were hearing from, was that. We don't really know, um, you know, what it means when you take a medication during pregnancy. Um, You know, there's anecdotal evidence. I think um, a lot of physicians are prescribing medications that they know are safe, but they're older, so maybe there's something new on the market that could be better for them, but they would never prescribe it um, because you just don't know. So, um, you know, we found out that. Um, The other thing that we realized and sort of where this provision came from is that, um, you know, there's a lot of work happening at the federal government level in terms of research and drug development, um, and there are some things happening in this phase of pregnancy, but um, nobody was really talking to each other about the work that they were doing. So, um, you know, this provision in the bill, um, with great thanks to Senator Patty Murray from Washington State, um, Congresswoman Herrera Butler, also from Washington State, and Congresswoman Kathy Castor from Florida. Um, They were our congressional champions who really um, were able to get this very small provision into a a huge bill, must pass piece of legislation is to create a task force to get, um, you know, members of the federal agencies together to talk about where there are gaps in research um, to prioritize um, conditions in which it would be very beneficial to know more information during pregnancy. Um, From my perspective, I think diabetes is is prime for that um, just because, not only do you have, um, you know, type 1, type 2 diabetes, but also gestational diabetes is very important. Um, and so a woman may need to control that during pregnancy. Um, when you're not pregnant any longer, that goes away. Um, but that could mean that you are at greater risk for developing type 2 diabetes well, later on in life. So there are a lot of different facets of this, I, you
1: know, um, but I
4: do I, think I um, diabetes I is, point is point very important here.
1: This, this a right I don't understand. <laughs> I I could hear some of you but it seems strange to me that we're just hearing about this now. I'm I'm going to be talking to Ash Brown later. Lorraine is is here with us. So is Dr. Andrea Chisholm. I, I didn't hear anything about this bill going through. It's kind of funny how... You know you don't hear about this, and yet it's it's it certainly pertains to my organization and to our listeners and i'm I'm glad we're talking more okay. about it. I'll have well, to email you to get more information to share with everyone. I'm just curious though like why um is it is the news just breaking like where would I have found out about this and if someone like Asha or Lorraine wanted to get involved to in helping uh, bills like this become laws politics. where where should and they turn I because I do have a lot of women in divabetic who are as passionate and as vocal and in, as intelligent as both Lorraine and Asha, um, as well as Dr. Andrea. And I, I, where, where do you think they should focus their energy? Because I, we all want to get into the fight in a, in a hopeful way, as Dr. Andrea mm-hmm.
4: said. Yes. Well, and that's the key. I mean, I do think, and, and you know, she also, I, I caught her saying, you know, when you empower yourself, you know, you have to be, you know, your own advocate, and I think that's really the way um, that you can do it. This particular provision, it was very under the radar, um, and that was, you know, for some sort of strategic reasons um, as the groups were coming together to think through, um, you know, how what the best potential for getting this bill passed was. Um, And so there were some really intense negotiations that I think we felt like if we made a more public Sort of plea for it um, you know maybe it wouldn't have been included at some point so um, you are not the only one who has not heard of this issue but I am really thrilled because I think we do need you know the fight is not over just because we now have this task force um, you know we will be continuing to try to implement it in a way that makes sense and particularly with a transition of administration Um, You know, on January 20th, we want to make sure it's getting done in the right way. So I think for this particular provision, you know, there's a couple of things. I'm happy to share all of my contact information. Um, I run a coalition called the Coalition to Advance Maternal Therapeutics, We are a really informal kind of ragtag group of organizations, um, you know, fighting for this particular issue um, and for wanting to make sure that there is appropriate representation on this task force, whether it's um, through physician groups, you know, other experts and and patient advocates as well. Um, This was a sort of a piece of this particular um, advocacy effort that was you know, I want to say missing a little bit was the patient voice. Um, we had a lot of the physician voice, which is great, um, but it, it's it's difficult, um, you know, to sometimes get women involved in, in their health care. And I think, you know, some of that goes back to um, women playing many roles and, you know, uh, you know, thinking about how do I make time for this? Um, but I welcome any and all participation in our coalition. But, you know, there are lots of different ways to be able to, stand up for yourself, and, you know, reach out to your elected officials, and, you know, they work for you. Um, So, you know, you have to always keep that in mind. Um, I often find, you know, the lobbyists at a firm for a number of years and worked with a lot of patient advocacy groups and physician groups, and everyone was always intimidated when they went to Capitol Hill, Um, and it was never sort of like the first thing that they thought of to do when they had an issue. Um, You know, you have to really empower yourself. Find out who your member of Congress is. Who's the Healthcare staff person, which you can call, um, you know, their DC office and just ask, and they will let you know that. Um, you know, you can shoot them an email or set up a conference call with them. Um, you often might find friends in unexpected places. So, you know, when you build that relationship with your legislators, um, you know, you may find that they have a connection to your issue. Um, I, I think in the diabetes space, there is a Congressional Diabetes Caucus, and it's huge and it's bipartisan. Um, And so, you know, they are really committed to getting um, things done, regardless of who is in power. They've always been very successful. So um, you can Google the Congressional Diabetes Caucus and find out who the members are. You can encourage your own member to join that. Um, I think it's just really important to open up that dialogue and and be very honest with them. Um, I think when you look at sort of the Affordable Care Act outlook for, you know, 2017, um, when we think about our own health care, um, you know, kind of know what it is that you were able to have from the Affordable Care Act, if, if that's something that you took advantage of. You know, why is it important um, that you continue to have, you know, no, um, you know, discrimination based on pre-existing conditions or why there should be no lifetime caps on on your out-of-pocket costs and whatever else, um, you know, your lifetime caps on your insurance coverage. Um, and then, Tell your member of Congress why you need to keep that. Um, I think the reality is the Affordable Care Act will be repealed, um, but there will be a period of time where um, something else will be transitioned. In. What that is, I don't know yet, um, but it will, there will be something. So what we need to do as advocates and, you know, when you're thinking about your own health care is really sort of know the issue, know yourself and your own health care needs, And really advocate for them. I mean, I do think um, people want to do the right thing. How we get there is going to always be different depending on what party is in power. But, um, you know, I am. I probably sound really optimistic right now. (laughs) Um, Part of it is because I feel like I have to be. um, But I also do think that, you know, there will be something. This is not going to just go away. But whatever comes next will be very important to try to shape in the best way that we can.
1: No, I I appreciate that. All right, I want to have one more question, kind of a big one before we wrap up this interview um, with Catherine Schubert. Schubert, you're the current president of Women in Government Relationships. You're also the chief advocacy officer for the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Uh, Donald Trump just announced that the health secretary will be Tom Price, uh, he is a representative from Georgia. He's also a physician. Curious to know what the pros and cons to that choice are from your perspective.
4: (laughs) So I will speak on my own personal behalf here, um, because the SMFM, you know, is also a nonprofit, and so we did not take a position on on Dr. Price. Um, But I will say, as a long time advocate in in the public health space. that I think having someone who knows um, health care and the system will be helpful. Um, and I also am, I, I've sort of said this when, when this happened and, and when Dr. Price was, was announced as the nominee, I said, well, okay, fine. Um, but the really interesting piece is going to be who um, the president elect put up for the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, which is a woman who worked with um, Governor Pence in Indiana to expand Medicaid. So, um, you know, she has been long involved in the Affordable Care Act herself. And so I think that, you know, it will really come down to, you know, who are the people that everyone is surrounding themselves with. Um, Remember that, you know, civil servants are um, not necessarily appointed, and so a lot of the folks who are there implementing the ACA Um, We'll remain on board. Um, I know I personally have encouraged folks to stay on board and, you know, stick with it for a little while um, and and wait and see. Nothing had happened yet. Um, But, you know, I think from the perspective of of Dr. Price, he knows the system. He knows the Hill. Um, There are always going to be things that we don't like about people. And, you know, he has been very public on a lot of his um, positions, of course. um, And there are going to be things that we don't all agree on. But I do think that fundamentally, um, he is someone that health advocates can work with.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have to have you back uh, later this year to talk more about what's going on from Capitol Hill and also filling filling us in more on how we could all get involved in that bill that just be, became a law from um, President Obama. Thank you so much for joining I would us love tonight, Catherine Cooper. Have a thank good night. You. Thank you.
3: You too.
1: All right, everyone. Coming up, we've got two guests who are on our most popular podcast of the year back in July. We're going to have a quick discussion with Asher Brown and then the Peak 10 skincare founder, Connie Elder. But first, I want to take a minute and listen to our diva inspiration, Leona Lewis, You know, I've been listening to Leona all the way back when she recorded Bleeding Love, which peaked at number one in over 30 countries, becoming the best-selling single of 2008. Here she is to sing another Christmas song. Let's listen to Leona Lewis. Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. What an exciting year. I've been able to host this next guest, I think, three times this year. Please welcome back to the show the founder of We Are Diabetes, Asha Brown. Hello, Asha. Hi, Max. Good to be here. Great to have you back on the show. Dr. Andrea and I were talking about you earlier. I'll bring her back in in a minute. Um, we wanted to give our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit what's been going on because when we last talked to you back in July, as I mentioned earlier, you were you really took your health into your own hands. Again, you've always been an amazing advocate, but you were really struggling with a, uh, a confusing diagnosis and the switch in doctors and you made some big changes in your healthcare team. So, why don't you uh, just give us a little bit of a uh, behind-the-scenes story of what was going on and then catch us up, if you don't mind.
5: Sure, sure. So um, st- a last year, of, uh, basically starting last October 2015, um, I, I have PCOS, and I've had that since I was 16 years old, polycystic ovary syndrome, and something went awry. And I started to have the longest period of my entire life where it just, wouldn't stop and i will preface this by saying i'm on continuous birth control so that shouldn't be happening but i was given some bad advice from my old OBGYN to go off my continuous birth control to give my body a break which was something that i was very doubtful about and a little concerned about but she was my OBGYN, so i thought she knew best and that was not a good idea so i bled continuously for nine months straight um, that was the total amount. I became anemic and very weak, and my diabetes suffered horribly. I'm a type 1 diabetic. So um, after four months of, of unstopping menstrual cycle and my uh, then OBGYN um, not taking a lot of action but simply putting me on more and more Um, higher levels, levels of birth control so at one point I was on two types of birth control I was taking double doses of estrogen and progesterone at the same time and I was getting sicker and sicker from all those hormones I decided to leave her practice and fire her and I did a lot of online searching to try to find a more progressive doctor who and I did find him and he gave me some excellent advice and I had surgery to uh to make the bleeding stop i had a, a C in june and um so far i have not had any more continuous bleeding so my health has improved really rapidly my diabetes is back under control my a1c is back where i want it to be and i have energy to function again
1: <laughs> well that's fantastic all right let's bring in dr andrea I'm so glad you came back to share that with us. Dr. Andrea, oh, what do you yeah. think of Asha Brown? She's doing amazing, right?
2: Yeah, she's doing great. Asha, it's so great to hear that you're doing so well.
5: Yeah, I, I'm glad to hear it too.
1: <laughs> is this common, um, Dr. Andrea, with like, you know, women switching gynecologists? And I know Asha's story is uh, very unique in many ways, but at the same time, she's also representing a lot of women who were dissatisfied with one health care provider and actually decided to not take it anymore. Don't want to put words in your mouth, Asha, but it seems like that's what you were oh, saying. Oh sure. Yeah and, absolutely. And really, yes. Um, so where do you if if that is I'm first is it common or not common? And if it is common, where do you suggest people go to research another doctor? Since that sometimes it's difficult to know go where do I go next?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean I, I think that uh, the the most important message there is if you if if you um if you feel like uh, you're not doing well based on a recommendation that a physician made, you really should, um, you know, advocate for yourself or or at least get a second opinion. You know, any physician who becomes defensive if you suggest that what they've suggested is not working well or if they balk at the idea of you getting a second opinion is not a physician that you want caring for you. Um, You know, I think partially, uh, you know, uh, some there is there is a bit of a dearth of understanding, um, maybe amongst general gynecologists uh, about the effects of different changing hormones on diabetes, and sometimes, you know, I think all as physicians we can be a little bit um, can be a little bit uh, have a tendency to just focus narrowly on our uh, area of the body so you know Mm -hmm. I'm sure your gynecologist had the best intentions of trying to manage your bleeding but wasn't paying attention to what those hormones would be doing to you who has type 1 diabetes and PCOS and what adding all that progestin would do to you and so I think if you have a have a gut feeling that something is wrong or you're not being looked at as a as a a whole as a whole person and all the systems working together then you definitely need to um, uh, search for a a new physician now how to go about doing that can be a little bit tricky Um, you know obviously asking asking uh, uh, people that you know is one option Um, looking on uh, organization sites that 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 may may also happen to post some physicians who have a certain interest in that area can be helpful Um, uh, but, again, a lot of it does have to do with a lot of a lot of self-advocating. self
1: uh, advocating. Nice. Well, Asha Brown, we're so glad to have you on the show to give us that progress report. Tell everyone a little bit about We Are Diabetes organization and the great work you're doing.
5: Oh, of course. So We Are Diabetes is a nonprofit organization that helps type 1 diabetics who struggle with disordered eating, body image issues, Um, isolation and depression but we primarily focus on eating disorders not just diabulimia but all eating disorders that affect both men and women with type one and we offer one-on-one mentorship we refer to capable treatment centers and we provide resources for their friends and families that they know how to support their loved ones and
1: I bet you wear a lot of devices don't you Asha
5: I only wear one. I am a CGM girl, but I still do uh MDI, multiple daily injections. I'm not into pumps.
1: And do you wear an Apple Watch?
5: I don't. No, my husband is in IT, so we're an Android bunch. We're we're not Apple people. Oh.
1: <laughs> Well, you might but be I... interested in our next topic of discussion because I have a wonderful certified diabetes educator, Marianne Hordowitz, coming up, and we're going to talk about what's going on with Aetna and how Apple Watches Ooh. might be changing the way our health care premium might be changing just the way health care in general uh, is going forward. So stick around because right now I want to bring Marianne on, in on this hot topic. Marianne, you sent me a great interview today, uh, a great article today about Aetna and how they're really being the first healthcare company to really look at some of these mobile apps for healthy initiatives with their own employees. They're going to give them away to them for free, as I understand it, and really be able to track how people are doing in a way to help them better their health.
6: Yes, absolutely. Can you all hear me? This is my first time being on your podcast. We
1: can. Thank you for joining us.
6: Well, am I coming through my voice?
1: yeah, you're I could hear you I, I okay, think perfect. Can well do. well,
6: thanks, you know what yeah, I'm really, really excited about this. um you know, the Apple watch, and this is not to be an advertisement for the company, but it it's really a fancy app, so to speak, a high tech technology device where uh, people with diabetes or any chronic disease can input um their lifestyle indicators that um, improve the management of their disease, like how many steps they've walked, uh, how many healthy meals they've eaten, how many grams of carbohydrate they've consumed, how much animal fat they got in one day, or dietary fiber. And all that data going through the watch, which is a very sophisticated, think of it as like an app on a cell phone, um, can be fed right into the insurance company, the healthcare plan, and when they, they look at that lifestyle data, which is positive, you know, I've controlled my carbs, and I've only eaten this many, and I've also, I mean, that then will tell the payer, the health care insurance company, that you're taking good care of yourself lifestyle-wise. And that could considerably reduce your monthly premium on your health plan. So looking at light positive lifestyle behavior changes and translating that into quantifiable data through the patient, putting that through the watch, that can directly lower your health care premium every month.
1: Because we should tell people, like, currently most health care premiums are calculated based on a larger population data, and this new change with Aetna and Apple Watch really could significantly change it uh change our premiums based on the fact of what you're saying that it's personal health data that they're able to base my premium on and that just kind of brings it down to an individual basis right that would be oh, groundbreaking absolutely. for a lot of people
6: now yeah an individual customized basis for each individual patient um and this is not just for diabetes i understand this is this is a podcast for diabetes but, like in my situation, I've had cancer twice. And so I have to have certain lifestyle, healthy behaviors to avoid getting um, cancer again. And if I'm able to input that into a device that goes directly to my insurance company, I could lower my health care premiums. And it, it's just, it's going to turn health care significantly on its orbit or on its axis. It's going to really change. The future of how premiums are calculated. And it's based on what we do every day in our life to make ourselves healthier.
1: No, I love it. Where do you think people could find out more information about it, Marianne, if they're interested?
6: Well, I would go to the Aetna website for sure. I would go to the Apple website, of course, uh, where the watch, of course, Apple is manufacturing the watch and they're partnering now. This is all in the planning stages with Aetna. So on their two websites you could actually call And get a customer service representative at Apple and at Aetna And um, just for the sake of, of my being a guest on on your show tonight um, I just went and did a general Google search Or on any of your browsers that says changes in diabetes care And that's how I found this wonderful information about Apple and Aetna
1: I love it, thank you so much Well thank you so much for joining us And uh, I don't know if you like Christmas music as much as I do, Marianne, but according to the Guinness World Book of Records, the version of our next song sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time. Take that, Mariah Carey. And it estimated sales of an excess of 100 million copies worldwide. Let's listen to Leona Lewis sing White Christmas. Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. David Bedick. It's time to welcome my friend, Peak Ten Skincare founder, Connie Elder. Hi, Connie.
0: Hey, Max. How are you?
1: I'm great. Are you guys having a white Christmas in Colorado?
0: We are absolutely having a white Christmas. We, it is just so magical here. It's just beautiful. I, I can't even describe how how festive it is. And just magical is the word I like to use because it's like a winter wonderland every day.
1: I know. And you post on Facebook pictures of mooses and, and other wildlife <laughs> running through your backyard. And it, I love looking right. at it, but I'm thankful to be in the um, – urban sprawl of, of new york <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you know what we all have our things that we love and new york has its magical things at christmas as well
1: all right well we're going to talk a little bit first about skincare and uh the winter and then we're going to talk a little bit about your own personal story and touch back on, on what i was talking earlier with lorraine brooks but first i uh, because it is divabetic and we are glamour fearless winter winter and skin don't always go together
0: Winter can be very on the skin, without a doubt. And I think we all need to take some cautions and do some extra preventive measures to keep our skin protected during the winter. There's a few things that I would suggest, Max, to anyone, but certainly someone who is a diabetic, because um, you really want to keep your skin strong, and the way you do that is keep your skin hydrated. And I suggest to everyone to add a serum Underneath their moisturizer, after they've cleansed their face, if they'll put on a serum and then layer their moisturizer on top, it just really helps to strengthen the skin by hydrating the skin, and the winter weather just just really pulls the moisture out of our skin. And then you have the added cold and the wind in so many climates uh, that make a difference as well. So that's my number one suggestion. And second, I suggest adding a heavier moisturizer. Changing your moisturizer from the summer, spring weather, and your your fall and winter, you definitely need to have a little bit heavier moisturizer. And those two things will really help a lot.
1: Oh, no, that sounds like great advice. All right, well, we, you, we also asked a question on our Facebook page today for the Instant Winter Prize um, that relates to winter skin. It, the question was... Skincare is more important is is a more, more I can't even speak anymore. I've had so many great guests on this show, I'm tongue tied. Skincare is a more important beauty product to wear than lip balm during the winter. This is a tough question, Connie, because I personally get chapped lips the minute the temperature dri dips below 40 degrees so we put this out on our facebook page you're going to reveal the answer and then we're going to go back and see who won and then later we'll re- we're going to do a random drawing to see who gets a fabulous gift from peak 10 skin care but what is the answer to this question
0: well the answer is sunscreen but i will say that both are important but sunscreen is the most important for the health of your skin um uh, sunscreen and lip balm Help as far as they feel good, and really to you know keep your skin from being dry and your lips from being dry, but from the health of your skin and from the sun and the effects of the uh, sun on your skin potential um, cancer ramifications of too much sun exposure. And we all forget about it in the winter sometimes because we're just so glad that there's some sun shining and that there's warmth on our face, and we forget that the rays are still very much damaging to the skin from an anti-aging standpoint and also from just the health of our skin. So sunscreen should be used no matter whether it's um, the dead of winter or, in the summer, and certainly in the climate where I am, because we are at such high elevation, the sun is brutal in the winter,
1: absolutely all right well, you know when you when someone hears your voice, they hear hope and um, positivity, and that 's not always been the case with you tonight we 've been talking a lot about being hopeful uh, post-Donald Trump election and what could be in the future. And I spoke to poet Lorraine Brooks, who's a domestic violence advocate, earlier about some of the um, strategies for people who might be in abusive relationships, how to get out. I wanted to um, go back with you 20 years ago and tell a little bit of your story, what was going on in order to encourage other people with hope and optimism this holiday season.
0: Well, twenty years ago, this past December ninth, I left an abusive relationship, and um, I was a quite different person. I think I, uh, Max, I think you saw my post that I wrote on that day um, recently. Um, I was. Yeah, I was you said afraid. you were scared,
1: unsured, lonely, and uh, that those were. That was twenty years ago on December ninth, I believe.
0: Yes, and so you know there were so many people that didn't know what was going on with me because probably as something you guys discussed earlier, people keep, when someone's in an abusive situation, they keep it to themselves, and they don't share a lot. But it, but that was the day that I left, and I, I refer to it as the day that I took back my life. And for so long in that six years, it seemed like uh, an eternity, um, I really didn't make any choices that had to do with my my well-being. And so I took my life back. I moved away. I did it in a safe manner. I had people with me when I moved. Um I had some a couple really close friends who helped me that day that I will never forget and and on that day, every year, I reach out to them just to say i haven 't forgotten you know whether it was ten years later or the year after, but now it 's twenty years later, and those people changed my life because they were there for me in a very frightening time of my life and a very vulnerable time of my life but at that on that day, I had hope I had hope that I could have a better life, that I was supposed to have a better life, and that I just needed to take the steps to make that happen and then believe and have the hope that I could I could make my life better. And anyone who's in that situation, there are choices. My My message has always been you always have choices. Sometimes they don't look real good, and sometimes they look really scary. But educate yourself to the things that um, there's so many organizations out there that can be helpful. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence has a great website with a lot of great tools and resources that can help you prepare to leave so that you can do it in a safe manner.
1: Absolutely, and that was a story I wanted to share with everyone this holiday season because it is filled with hope. Dr. Andrea said it at the beginning of the program. I just want to tell people the National uh, Domestic Violence Hotline, again, is 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. Um, Connie, thank you so much for sharing that story. It's important, I think, that we share these stories, especially at this time, uh, what's going on and what could happen in 2017, especially with women, women's health, women's rights, and and knowing that there's hope is really important to me, a message of hope.
0: It is very important, and I believe that we all can hang on to hope and help each other to believe that there is um, choices and that there is hope ahead for all of us in 2017.
1: Thank you. Well, thanks for being on the show, and we'll be awarding that instant winner prize Later this week. Thank you, Connie Elder. I'm going to go right back to Dr. Andrea. Dr. Andrea, I was with you in July. We're in uh, December. I think you're going to have to come back next year, since you were part of one of the biggest podcasts of you were part of the biggest podcast of the year for us. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Um, women's rights, women's health in 2017. You mentioned that there's a message of hope out there. What do you want to say to women who might be listening right now?
2: Um, I, w- I would like to say that um, you know I I, I hope that um, that you will be inspired by the topics that are covered on this podcast to um, really take take control of your of your health and well being that you become an advocate for yourself that um, you know you do seek you do seek the care of of uh, doctors um, who are are or other healthcare professionals, um, but you really do know your body best and you need to be able to uh, have the tools and the ability to express um, how you're feeling to really work to get the care that, the care that you need. And to invest in your own in your own health and well being I mean you do have to you do have to take some ownership and some responsibility uh, for for your own um, overall wellness and prevention of disease um, that's what I would like to say
1: Well, and I want to say thank you for being on the show and I want to thank all my guests tonight, especially thank you for listening and making our Visits to the Gynecologist, your most popular podcast of 2016. We've got a whole year more of music, great diabetes, expert advice, more poetry from Lorraine Brooks, more games and prizes. Plus, you could subscribe to the DivaBedic e-newsletter at divabedic.org. Visit DivaBedic's Facebook page. And check out my videos on Mr. DivaBedic's YouTube channel. Now, remember, every diva... And every dude has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's get happy and stay healthy together. We're going to end this podcast and, the, and 2016 with one more song from Leona Lewis. Uh, she's the first British female solo artist to achieve eight top five singles, surpassing Olivia Newton-John's record of seven. Here's another great song by Leona Lewis. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you for listening.